heard about an article recently in Newsweek magazine, and the writer of this article was making the point that we in our world today, in the Western world, for the most part, are a spiritual people. And she argues that our spirituality in the Western world has been greatly influenced by Christianity. It has Christian influence at times, uses Christian language, but she also argues in the article that if you really press people, though it sounds to be influenced by Christians, it, it, it sounds Christian, it does not even remotely resemble biblical New Testament Christianity. And though this this author is not a Christian, as far as I can tell, I believe that she is not off base here in this article. I agree that we in the Western world, for, a mo- for the most part, are a spiritual people. Just listen to the way people talk when they talk about God and when they talk about man and life and death and life after death. We are a spiritual people, but the majority of what people believe today does not line up with what the Bible teaches. So if this is our current situation, believers, the question we need to ask ourselves is this, how are we to respond as God's people? What is the solution to our current situation? Listen, our solution is always God's Word. Always God's Word. It's in God's Word where we're redirected and we're corrected in our view about God and our view about man and our view about life and our view about death and our view about life after death. We need to hear God's Word. We need to read God's Word. We need to study God's Word. We need to be faithful to share God's Word. And we need the Spirit of God through the Word of God to challenge and to change the way in which we think and the way in which others think and the way in which we feel and the way in which others feel and the way in which we live and the way in which others live. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. And in our text for this morning, we are going to see that there is a similar issue to what was addressed in that Newsweek magazine and that article I just made mention of. There's a similar issue with the Jewish Christians that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. We started this series last week, and last week we said that the book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ. The author goes to great lengths in this book to remind us, the readers, that Jesus is better. He is greater. He is supreme. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 3 and talked about how Jesus provides even greater revelation. He is God's greatest revelation to us. And the reason why is because He is the King of kings. He is our creator and sustainer. He is our God and our redeemer. Today we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 14. And in this passage, we're going to learn that Jesus is greater than the angels. 
Now, some of you may scratch your head at that, wondering why the author moves from Jesus being God's greatest revelation to him being greater than angels. Why does the author spend most of the first chapter in this book addressing this issue with angels? Well, it's important to understand whenever we study the Word of God, we must remember that context is key. Before we, we explain what God's word means to us today and try to draw out application for our lives today, it is essential that we remember first that the books we read in scripture were written by a certain author at a certain time to a certain people in a certain place for certain reasons, but also contains universal truths and application. So we need to first understand the context so that we can properly apply the text to our lives, okay? So we're going to do that. We're going to explain the main point of this text and the context surrounding this text of Scripture. And what you're going to find in this passage is that the author's main point is actually very, very simple. The author in this passage makes a relatively simple argument that we're going to follow. But you're also going to learn in this text of Scripture that there are some issues that come up as well when we break this passage down that we need to discuss as well. There are some rabbits that we're going to chase this morning, okay? We're going to dis discuss certain issues. We're going to talk about these, these sub-points that support the main point. And I'm going to try not to lose any of you in here. Hopefully I will not. But if you get, do get lost, listen, on a certain point, here's the key. Don't lose sight of the main point, okay? When studying Scripture, it's very, very important that we don't get so bogged down in the details that we miss the main point of the text of Scripture. Many people do that. They love chasing all of these rabbits and, and, and fleshing out all these details and they lose sight of the main point. Don't do that. That's a good principle. Whenever you're studying the Bible, keep the main thing the main thing. Don't lose sight of the main point. And the main point the author is making in this passage for our text today is that Jesus is supreme among the angels. You got that? He is greater than angels. And in this passage, he is going to give us three reasons why that is the case. And something else I hope you see as we discuss these points this morning is what true, authentic, biblical, New Testament Christianity looks like. Because like we said a moment ago, people are confused on this. And though the writer is writing to Jewish Believers, the Jews that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, they had certain beliefs that were off as well. There were things about them, certain beliefs and practices, though they were influenced by the Christian faith, they did not line up with Scripture, especially when it came to their beliefs about angels. They had too high a view of angels, which is why the writer says what he does in this passage and why he gives us three reasons why Jesus is greater than angels. Here's the first reason. Point number one, because Jesus is the eternal son of God. Look at verse four and five. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? 
Today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The point the author is making here is very, very simple. He's making the point that Jesus is superior to angels. Why? Because of who he is. Because of his name, because of his title, because of his relationship with the Father, because he is God the Son. And I want you to notice something very important here. In verse 5, the author of Hebrews quotes several Old Testament passages. He quotes Psalm 2, Psalm 89, 2 Samuel 7. He's going to quote Old Testament all throughout this book. And the reason why is because, remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience who are drifting from New Testament Christianity and re-embracing Old Testament Judaism. The author of Hebrews is doing two things here. He's very, very wise in what he does. He's writing about how Jesus is superior to angels, and he's also pointing to the fact that the writers of the Old Testament wrote about the Messiah in this way. We know that's Jesus, right? They wrote about Jesus in this way. They pointed to him and communicated these wonderful truths about him all throughout the scriptures. Therefore, there's no need to move beyond Jesus, right? There's no need to add anything to Jesus. There's no reason to view angels as being higher than Jesus because all of those things are a step in the wrong direction. Jesus is supreme. The historical writers and the psalmist pointed these things out in their writings. Notice in verse 5, the author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament writings about Jesus to help him answer the rhetorical question, which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And the answer, of course, is none of them. God never said that to them. God never elevated an angel to that position as a son, not any time in Scripture. Now, some will respond and say, well, there are some places where God's people are referred to as children of God, sons and, and daughters of his. There's that place in Genesis where some people, trans, they, they interpret the sons of God as being angels, and we won't get into all the different interpretations of that. That'd take the rest of the morning. Here's the point, though. The author is making the point there is no one in all of Scripture, in all of human history, who has had the relationship with the Father that Jesus has. Jesus is the unique and supreme Son of God. That title, that position is reserved for Him and Him only. Amen? And that's what makes Him superior to the angels. Now, there's an issue we need to address here, and it's found here in verses 4 and 5. In the NIV, in the Home and Christian Standard Version of the Bible as well, the word become is used. That word causes people some problems and has been horribly misinterpreted because some understand that to mean there was a time when Jesus became the Son of God, which indicates that there was a time when he was not the Son of God. Look at, verses, uh, look at verse 4. The NIV, it says this, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. In the King James, it says Jesus was made 
Some take those verses and argue that there was a time in history when Christ was not the Son, that he became the Christ sometime in history. He became the Son of God. Well, what do we do with challenging interpretations like these in our Bibles? Well, first off, don't panic, okay? Scripture is God-breathed divinely inspired it is held up under these attacks for centuries second it's important to understand what the text is saying and what it's not saying biblically based upon what the rest of the bible teaches it's very very important to interpret scripture with scripture and when we do that here's what we learn we learn that this verse is not saying that there was a certain point in history when jesus was not the son One of the reasons comes directly out of Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 2 again. We looked at it last week. In these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Here we're told God spoke through his Son, through whom he created the world. Jesus is the Son of God. He was in the beginning with the Father. He is the creator of all that is. He has eternally coexisted with the Father and Spirit as the Son of God. There was not a time when he was not God. He was not made. Now, there was a time when he became a man, right? But he has always eternally coexisted with the Father and the Spirit in relationship with them and His deity. There's another scripture that helps us shed light on what's being said here. I've got it up on the screen for you. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Listen to what, listen to what Paul says here in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Now notice here, keep that verse up. Notice Paul says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Now, does that mean that Jesus was not the Son of God prior to the resurrection? Is that what he's saying? No, we know that's not true, right? Because at Jesus' baptism, remember John the Baptist baptized Jesus. What did the Father say from the heavens? This is my what? My son, right? This is my Son, He says that. The Father does. What I believe Paul is saying here is that the resurrection, get this, provides strong proof that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be and came to accomplish exactly what he said he was going to accomplish. So at the resurrection, Jesus' sonship is highlighted. It's declared. It's shown. It's demonstrated. It's proven in a powerful way. Guess what? That's what I believe the writer of Hebrews is doing here. We have a very similar word here. Remember in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 from last week, we're reminded of what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. He made purification, we're told, for our sins in his death and resurrection. Afterwards, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, sat down at his right hand, signifying that the work that he came to do was finished. And the fact that he did all of those things makes it clear and obvious that Jesus is God's Son. He is who he claimed to be. He accomplished what he came to accomplish. So Jesus has always been the Son of God. There was a time, however, when he came to earth 
He took on flesh, accomplished our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. And get this, through that great work, God showed, he displayed, he declared who Jesus is in a more powerful and significant and obvious way. You with me? Okay. Now, I know that's a long side note. Hopefully, I didn't lose any of you, but if I did, come on back to the main point. Let me bring you back. Come on back to this main point in this text. It's very, very easy. The main point is that Jesus is greater than angels. How do we know that? We know that because Jesus has a better title, a greater name, a superior position. He has a relationship with the Father like no other. He is the eternal Son of God. Now, let's answer this question. Why did the Hebrews need to hear this truth? Why did they need to know that Jesus is greater than angels? And why did they need to be reminded of Christ's great person and work? Well, in this day, at this time, this group of Jewish Christians were starting to not make Christ central in their thinking, in their living, and in their faith. Does that sound familiar? Jesus had taken a back seat. He was becoming someone less than who he should have been in many of their lives, and he was being replaced by something else. And we learn that that something here, among other things, was angels. The Jews in this day had a very high view of angels. They viewed them as God's superior messengers, much greater than the prophets, these special mediators. I read where many Jews in this day believed that it was the angels who were the ones who were responsible for keeping the stars in place, holding back the sea, and controlling the weather, which is probably why the author in Hebrews 1 stresses the fact that it is Jesus who is holding creation together, sustaining things by the word of his power. But it it seems as if the audience of Hebrews had been influenced by these beliefs, and angels were were taking Jesus' place in their spiritual lives. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Keep Jesus central. He is better. He is greater, supreme over the angels, and he should be supreme in your life. You want to know what I think? I believe that our enemy doesn't mind all that much believers being about Jesus to an extent as long as they're not all about Jesus. I believe the enemy doesn't mind this today. He doesn't necessarily mind if we mention Jesus on occasion or like Jesus or speak favorably of him from time to time. He just does not want Jesus to be supreme, to be all we think about and all we talk about and the one we're all about and the one we're solely devoted to. He wants to have things that rival that relationship and even replace that central place in our hearts and lives that is reserved for Christ alone so that we will be rendered ineffective in ministry for him and get this this is key that thing in your life that rivals Jesus doesn't have to be a bad thing it could be a good thing let me ask you are are angels good are they yeah They're the God's messengers. They they serve God. They worship Him. They are incredible, created beings that show forth His greatness and His glory. They're not bad. They're good, but they must not rule the heart of a believer. 
Paul David Tripp, one of my favorite Bible teachers and, and, and authors and Christian counselors says this, write this down. He says, even a good thing can become a bad thing if that thing becomes a ruling thing. Let me say it again. Even a good thing can become a bad thing if that thing becomes a ruling thing. Listen, work is good, but it must not rule your heart. It must not rival the place in your heart that is to be reserved only for King Jesus. Money in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's used in incredible ways. We use it here each and every week to do what we do in ministry. It's a good thing, but it can become a bad thing if it rules your heart. What is it for you, believers? Fill in the blank. Jesus and what? What is that other thing that rules you? Listen, Christ is to be supreme in your heart, in life, with no rivals. No rivals. Is he? I pray he would be. So here's a mark of true, authentic, historical, New Testament Christianity. Christ alone is central. He is to be supreme in your heart and life, and he is to have no rivals. The second argument the author of Hebrews makes on why Jesus is superior to angels is this. Number two, Jesus is worshipped and served by angels. Follow this simple logic with me. Angels worship Jesus, therefore, Jesus is superior to angels. You follow that? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, before we get into the explanation of, of this verse of Scripture, we've got another rabbit to chase. We need to talk about another issue that we encounter here in this passage of Scripture, and that is the word firstborn. Some hear that, and they think if Jesus was born, that means he's created, and he's less than God. But those who explain that in this way, they don't understand what the Greek word protokos means. Now listen, when we say firstborn, we're talking about a child who was born first, right? That's what we mean. But the Greek word refers to one who receives priority the supreme one, the first one, the favored one, the special one, the one who receives the inheritance, the preeminent one. Think about Jacob and Esau for a minute in Genesis. Remember, they were twins, but who was born first? Y'all remember? Esau. But who received the inheritance? Jacob. Jacob was the protokos. He was the preeminent one, the leading one, the favored one, the one who received the blessing and inheritance. That's what the text is saying here. Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the favored one. He is the supreme one. We know this is not talking about him being created because, again, a few verses earlier, we're told that he is creator. In other passages, in John 1, Colossians 1, we learn that he created all that is, and there was not anything created that Jesus did not create. Therefore, he could not be created. You with me? If he created all that is, and there's nothing created that Jesus didn't create, then he couldn't be created. That's impossible. Jesus is supreme. He is supreme. Notice the Father elevates him above all else. He gives him the name above all names, and here we see that he calls for his angels to worship Jesus. Look at verse 7. 
of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And some of y'all are like, what does that mean? Scratching your head over that. Well, listen, the author of Hebrews is quoting Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 104. His audience would have been very, very familiar with this passage of Scripture. In this psalm, the psalmist, get this, he describes God as the one who controls all creation. And the psalmist in that psalm gives us a vivid description of God's sovereignty over creation. He controls the universe. The wind does his bidding. Fire is a sign of his authority. And though in the psalm, the psalmist is showing God's control over the physical world, the writer of Hebrews takes this psalm and implies it here. He puts it in here to show God the Son's sovereign control over the spiritual realm as well. The spiritual world has been created by Christ. And all spiritual creatures are under his sovereign control, under his authority. Like he controls the wind and the fire. Remember that was said of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Remember he calmed the storm. What do they say? Who is this guy that the wind obeys him? The physical world is under his sovereign control, but he also stands in authority over and controls the spiritual realm as well. Angels do his bidding. They are his messengers. And in this passage, in verse 6, God calls for angels to worship Jesus for this reason. We also learn in this passage that not only are angels created to worship Jesus, they are created to serve him. We're told in verse 7 that they are his ministers who do his bidding and show forth his authority skip down to verse 14 are they not all ministering spirits the angels sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation we learned last week that Jesus came to accomplish our salvation he is supreme in that way he alone is our redeemer he alone has made purification for our sins through his death and resurrection here we learn that angels serve Jesus by serving those who inherit salvation believers that's us that's us here we learn that that angels are sent by God to serve Christ by serving those he has made purification for those who have inherited salvation by faith alone through Christ alone. Angels serve Christ by serving his church. How do they do that? Well, Scripture tells us that God sends angels, right, as his messengers of his redemptive plan. They direct worship toward God, and they protect God's people. And we're called to do a similar work, believers. We, too, are called to worship and serve the Lord. We're, direct, we're to direct others to worship and serve the Lord. We're to share his message of salvation and serve others. We are to live our life unto Christ and not set our sights or let our affections be stirred by anyone or anything less than him. A key mark of authentic Biblical New Testament Christianity is to view Jesus as being everything, as being supreme. We're to be all about him. He is to be central in your life, again, with no rivals. He is the one everyone needs because he is the only way for us to be made right with God. He is worshipped and served by angels, believers, and he is to be worshipped and served by both you and me. Third and final argument the author of Hebrews makes on why Jesus is superior to angels is this. Number three, Jesus is God. 
He's God. This point is made over and over and over again in Hebrews. If you have anybody questioning you about whether or not Jesus is God and they're trying to use scripture, just take them to Hebrews. It's all over Hebrews. It's made over and over again. This is one of the most explicit passages in our Bible that teaches that Jesus is God. Let's look at it. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, notice once again, the author is quoting Old Testament here. A messianic psalm, Psalm 45. In the psalm, the psalmist is praising a Davidic king, a king in the line of David. And the only one who fits the description given in Psalm 45 is the Messiah, the King Jesus. He is the Messiah from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. He is God's forever king. And here the author of Hebrews takes his verse of scripture and he uses it to show the greatness and the supremacy of Christ. Hebrews 1.8, he says, But of the Son, he says. Who says? God says. Let me read that again. But of the Son, God says. Your throne, O God, who's he talking to? Jesus is forever and ever. That's amazing right there. Here you have God the Father speaking of God the Son, declaring the Son to be God. This is one of the clearest evidences in Scripture that Jesus is God. You have God the Father speaking of the deity of God the Son. He also mentions his authority again. He talks about his scepter. You know what a scepter is? It's an ornamented staff carried by a sovereign ruler. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. He is divine. He is supreme, the divine king of kings. He's already made mention of this in this chapter, but he's doing it again just to hammer this point home. And notice, throughout the rest of this chapter, the author provides more support for why Jesus is God. Notice he makes mention of the fact that he is eternal. That's the next point. Look at verse 8 again. He says, your throne will last forever and ever. He is eternal. Jesus is eternal. At the beginning of this book, we learn that the Son was in the beginning with the Father. He is the creator and will be king forever. He is eternal, the Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Notice also Jesus is righteous. Look at verses 8 and 9. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The author is quoting Psalm 45, and then he moves into quoting Isaiah 61 here to make the point that Jesus is his God's, his Father's forever King. He has been anointed by God the Father above and beyond his companions, above and beyond everyone in the Davidic line, all the kings of David. He's above and beyond them, anointed by God himself. He is the perfect king because he is divine. He is eternal. And like God the Father is righteous, he, Jesus, is righteous, and he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That is a divine quality right there given about Jesus. He rules right and has been anointed by God the Father himself. He is also creator. In case we hadn't got it, he's going to tell us that again. The author made this point already. He makes it again here in verse 10. Look at it. 
And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of his hands. The Son was with the Father in the beginning. All things were made by him. Nothing was made that he did not make. He is God. Notice we're also told that Jesus is immutable. Now that's just a fancy 25 cent term that means he's unchanging. Let's use that one. Jesus is unchanging. Look at verses 10 through 12. And by the way, being unchanging, that cannot be said of a created being, period. Only of God. Look at verses 10 through 12. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your your years will have no end. Now, think about the earth below us and the sky above us. That seems pretty permanent, right? The sky above us and the earth beneath us has been here a lot longer than we have, right? There's nothing more permanent than that. But notice the writer of Hebrews uses the sky above us and the earth beneath us to compare with Jesus, and he refers to it as a garment. Now, think about how often you change your clothes. The heavens above us and the earth beneath us are like a garment that is changed constantly compared to Jesus. He remains in his deity unchanging. They, they perish. He does not. They change. They will wear out. He is the same. He is unchanging. He is eternal. His years have no end. Last point. The author also gives us further evidence for the deity of Christ by making the point, once again, Christ has all authority. Jesus has all authority. Look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The angels don't have the authority Jesus has. They don't. He has all authority. He is pictured here once again as sitting at the right hand of the Father. Again, the author is quoting the Old Testament. This is taken from a great psalm, Psalm 110, another messianic psalm to remind his Jewish readers that this passage that was written by King David was written about a future king, the Messiah, the one we know, Jesus, King Jesus. So get this, this was written by a victorious king with great authority about the victorious king of kings king jesus who has all authority we're reminded once again like we are throughout scripture victory is certain for king jesus that's what we're reminded of in this verse of scripture we're told he will sit at god's right hand until god makes his enemies a footstool for his feet this is an exciting verse of scripture here in those days when a king had conquered a neighboring kingdom, the defeated king would be brought in and made to kneel with his face on the floor, and then the victorious king would prop his foot up on the head of his enemy. It was a sign of total and complete victory. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to do that. There's coming a day when all of God's enemies are going to suffer a total and complete defeat they're going to cower before king jesus he has all authority that cannot be said of angels only of jesus so another 
key mark of authentic biblical New Testament Christianity is this recognition that Jesus is God. He is divine. He is eternal. He is righteous, unchanging, creator of the universe who has all authority and the one who will have complete victory over his enemies in the end. And I have some sobering news to end with this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, if you're here and Christ is not the Lord of your life, then get this, you're currently numbered among God's enemies who will suffer this crushing defeat by the Lord Jesus in the end. Not my words, God's words. That's God's words. The reason why is because we are sinners. God created us in his image. He created us for his glory. And we have rejected his rule and reign in our lives. We have set ourselves against God in our sin. That makes us his enemies because he's righteous. He's a holy God who hates wickedness like we learned in verse 9. But here's the good news. Jesus has made purification for our sin, Hebrews 1.3. He has made a way for our sins to be covered by becoming one of us. He came to us. He lived the perfect life for us, and he laid his perfect life down in our place. He died in our place to pay the penalty that we deserve. For our sin he was raised for us and we're told that we through faith alone in him alone can be forgiven of sin and we can move through Jesus through faith alone in him alone we can move from being an enemy of God's to being a friend of God's we can move from being a sinner to being a saint from being wicked to being righteous from being opposed to God to being a child of his through Jesus you're here this morning and you have not made Christ Lord of your life I pray you would today forsake your sin bow your knee and your head before King Jesus make him your Lord today give your life up and over to him so that you can be at peace with God through Jesus let's pray